to start enrolling for. Nice, nice. Well, to be continued, I will um, I will follow your, your progress with great interest and uh, I look forward to meeting you in person one of these days. I'd love to do that, Sam. So pleasant to talk to you. Thank you so much. Okay. So as I said, about a week after I recorded that conversation with Roland, I had my first psychedelic experience in probably 25 years, maybe a little longer. Now, most of you know my history here. I wrote about it in my book, Waking Up, and the relevant chapter can be found on my podcast and in the Waking Up app under the title, Drugs and the Meaning of Life. It can also be found on my blog under that title. Now, I'll issue all the usual caveats here, briefly. Psychedelics are not for everyone. If you do them, you should do them with a guide. I don't recommend tripping at parties or concerts or out in the world where you can stumble into the lives of others or into traffic. And anyone at risk for psychosis probably shouldn't trip at all. As I wrote in Waking Up, some people can't afford to give the anchor of sanity even the slightest tug. Now, unfortunately, I don't know how one determines whether this admonition applies to oneself. But if you're concerned about this, you should talk to a psychiatrist or a psychopharmacologist or someone who can give you personal guidance. I really don't think people should take these drugs lightly. And as scientific research with psychedelics continues, and the opportunity to take them in a controlled setting becomes more available, I think it will become easier to evaluate these things and to explore these landscapes of mind safely. For instance, there are protocols for managing bad trips. A clinician can bring you down with Xanax or some other drug if things are really running off the rails for you. And bad trips aside, one wants to have good trips that lead to genuinely transformational insights. As Roland pointed out in this conversation, Many people have good experiences that don't change their lives very much. So to get the benefit, I think you need to approach the use of these tools seriously. And hopefully free people will eventually be free to do that with all the support and guidance that science can offer. That is, if the government doesn't kick in the door and put a stop to the whole thing in the meantime. The potential of these drugs to help people is so great, even people who are otherwise well that it would be a tragedy if we lost this moment again. So, where to begin? Well, here's what I did. I took five grams of dried mushrooms and stayed blindfolded throughout the trip. I had never done this before. All my previous mushroom trips had been in nature, at lower doses, and I'd never taken any psychedelic blindfolded. This was always Terence McKenna's recommendation five dried grams of mushrooms in the dark. And he always talked about this experience as though he were throwing down a gauntlet of sorts. He would say things like, if you really think you have an interest in the nature of mind, if you really have the courage of your convictions, well then just take five grams of mushrooms in the dark, and you'll see how much you didn't know. And I was aware that I had never done this, right? And I hadn't done it because I was scared to do it, frankly. It really was a kind of failure of nerve. I'd been hearing Terrence talk about this since the early 90s. And uh, I'd had several bad trips on LSD and even on mushrooms at lower doses that had given me cause for concern. 
I've had wonderful experiences on both those compounds as well, but the possibility of losing one's mind and of not getting it back feels real after a bad trip, even if it remains statistically unlikely. But after 25 years, I recognize that I'm at a different point in my life, and I had this nagging feeling that there was something for me to learn here. And it must be said that my wife, Annika, was strongly encouraging me to do this. She was really insistent that I do it. And so, as one does, I put it on the calendar. Now, as I discussed with Roland, there was one experience with psychedelics I had never had, which is often reported by people who take psilocybin at higher doses, as well as DMT. And that is the encounter with something that seems to have a mind of its own. And I was interested to have that experience. And unlike the LSD experiences I remember from my youth, there was a sense of being guided deeper across this landscape of mind by something. I thought about this as the mushroom itself. Now, of course, I'd been primed to think along these lines by listening to Terence McKenna rave about these things for many years. But there's no denying that there were parts of the experience that felt like an encounter with something other than my own mind. Now, to be clear, I'm not drawing any ontological conclusions from that. I'm just reporting the character of the experience. As I said, I was blindfolded throughout the trip. So, at first, it's like being locked in a dark closet. But as I was waiting for something to happen, I began to feel that there was a jaguar in the closet with me. And I began to suspect that some accommodations would have to be made. Now, unlike the DMT report that Roland and I laughed about in this podcast, I wasn't raped by a jaguar, but I can't say we're entirely on platonic terms either. Now, psilocybin is highly visual, and the visions come in waves, and each time they receded, I found myself saying or thinking, show me more. Again, there was a sense of being led by something across an inner landscape. And the notion of visions doesn't quite capture it. The experience isn't confined to one sense domain. There's a merging of the senses in a synesthesia. So one is really having a vision with one's whole body. You may know the Renaissance sculpture by Bernini of the Ecstasy of St. Teresa. That captures the mood pretty well. There's just an utter surrender to this thing. It's like your mind is being extruded across a landscape and conformed to it and squeezed and evaporated. There's definitely a motif of sacrifice here and dismemberment. It's like you are the lucky human sacrifice. And to say that one's mind has simply been shot out among the stars is somehow to trivialize the experience. Again, it's not merely a matter of seeing in a vast space. It's a matter of feeling to a degree that defies description. I mean, I can dimly remember feeling such intense gratitude that I wouldn't expect to feel any other emotion for the rest of my life. And there's no question that having experience of this kind in the context of believing specific religious doctrines could seem to confirm some of those doctrines. If, for instance, I had been a Christian with some notion of the Holy Spirit rattling around in my brain, well then I would count this experience as a full collision with it and proof of its reality. But as most of you know, my day job 
is to not be fooled by spurious ideas passed down from our ignorant ancestors. So I'm very slow to make claims about what I think is going on here. And there's no question that areas of the brain that represent our relationship to other minds can get triggered arbitrarily, just as Roland suggested. This happens every night when we dream. We feel ourselves to be in relationship to people and things that don't exist. And frankly, the sense of otherness was actually a minor component in the end. Mainly, it was an experience of mental reality utterly beyond what I recognized to be my own mind. It was not merely impersonal in the sense that I was brought beyond any reference to my own life. There was no discernibly human aspect to parts of this landscape. Now, the first revelation is with respect to the absolute insufficiency of language to capture the experience. I mean, you are wading into a roiling ocean of meaning with the proverbial thimble. What you bring back in that thimble just can't begin to indicate the immensity of the experience, or its beauty, or its terror, depending. Even to oneself, as an aid to memory, language is next to useless. And the fact that there are landscapes of mind this vast, lurking on the other side of a mushroom, is simply preposterous. I mean, how could that make any sense? The scale of the thing is all wrong. It violates every intuition you have about what it is to have a mind and a body in a world. It's as though we lived in a universe where if you just reached into your right pocket with your left hand, rather than pull out your wallet, you'd pull out the Andromeda galaxy. So the experience is altogether too much. It's like a reductio ad absurdum of one's desire for experience itself. It's as though the cosmos were saying, oh, experience is what you want? You want to see and feel and think? Okay, how's this? And then what follows is a vision so blinding in its beauty and intensity that it shatters your mind. It just unmakes you. Again, I have to admit the poverty of words here. Okay, we have a word for love, for instance. But what's the word for all the love you can possibly feel? And all the love that you recognize that you have failed to feel at every moment in your life up until this moment. What do we call the experience of having that ocean of feeling invade you and fill every empty space in your mind? There really are no words to describe this experience, just as there's no way of snapping your fingers to describe it. Language is simply the wrong tool for the job. Now, how does mindfulness relate to phenomena of this kind? While both meditation and psilocybin seem to have the same effect of decreasing activity in the default mode network, this network has been widely associated with self-referential thinking. And as Roland mentioned, there was a study just published recently on the interaction between mindfulness and psilocybin. They took a group of expert meditators and put them on a silent retreat for five days and gave half the group psilocybin and the other half a placebo on day four. And then they evaluated them on many measures of meditative and mystical experience, and then followed up at four months to assess the lasting effects. The important point is that on four-month follow-up, the measures of appreciation for life and self-acceptance and concern for society and planetary values, a sense of purpose, 
a lack of anxiety around death and dying. By all of these measures, the psilocybin group looks nothing like the controls. And compared to other studies with psilocybin, mindfulness appears to increase these effects and minimize the negative experiences. But the general picture with psilocybin, with or without mindfulness, is that, as Roland said, something like 70 to 80% of people who take the drug under controlled therapeutic conditions rated among the top five most important experiences of their lives, which is extraordinary. Now, I definitely think my experience in meditation helped me here, and I was conscious at many points of surrendering to the experience by cutting through the sense of self, which is to say subject-object dualism, as I discuss elsewhere in the Waking Up app. But there were also vast stretches of time where there was simply no recollection that mindfulness was an option. Again, it's hard to communicate how far gone one is. During the peak of the experience, which might last an hour or 90 minutes or so, there was no memory at all of having taken a drug. There was no reference point to my life in any sense. There was no possibility of controlling anything or of having a plan. Another analogy comes to mind here. Mindfulness seems to me like the discovery of fire, right? You can kindle it yourself, laboriously at first, but eventually you can produce it on demand, and it warms you, and you can put it to many useful purposes. And it really is fire, right? It's the real thing, as much as any other fire in the universe. But five grams of mushrooms is like being hurled into the sun. You can't use this experience at all but it's there. It's not merely consciousness without the feeling of self. It's the utter erasure of anything recognizably human about your mind. Now, if that scares you, perhaps it should. And there definitely is a fear of death or madness to overcome here, because resistance is just futile and very painful. And there's no doubt that many religious ideas in some way relate to this domain of experience. For instance, one could say that to recoil from the beatific vision is to be cast into hell, right? Or, alternately, one could say that one gets forced out of the Garden of Eden, and thereafter there's an angel with a flaming sword at one's back, and then one is left wandering this desiccated world of egoity, filled with fear and craving and confusion. These oppositions describe a kind of geometry of mind. And the way out of hell is simply to surrender all resistance, to recognize that consciousness itself, at its core, is imperturbable. Being itself is intrinsically free of its apparent changes. But it's true that realizing this, with a Category 5 hurricane of eschatology bearing down on you, is easier said than done. Now, what kept me sane, again, was gratitude and dropping the self and remaining open to experience and good intentions. Really, I think love is the ballast you want in your ship's hold as you set out over the abyss. Now, this isn't to say that the experience might not have gone some other way for me or that it couldn't go some other way in the future, because I think there is something about the initial trajectory of the launch that seems to matter. And in this case, my mind seemed totally permeated with feelings of gratitude and love and awe as the experience was achieving its 
peak intensity. The return to normal waking consciousness was a little shaky. To stick with the rocket analogy, there definitely was a sense that my vehicle might break up on re-entry. The first experience that is analogous to actually slamming down into the atmosphere of Earth is the surprising recollection that you've taken a drug, right? You've forgotten that. And this entails the realization that you are someone who was so far gone on drugs that you had no memory you had taken a drug in the first place. And although I'm not a clinician, it seemed easy enough to diagnose myself as psychotic at that point. And then, of course, the door to unpleasant thoughts immediately opens. You had such a good life, and now you've gone and ruined your mind on drugs. How are you going to explain this to your wife, that she's now married to a madman? But again, one is bouncing off the atmosphere here. So the recollection that one has taken a drug gets forgotten and must be relearned again and again as one skids and shudders and then finally comes hammering down through the atmosphere back to Earth. Now, as good as my trip was, at moments like this, one does pray rather fervently to the god of homeostasis. Just let my brain return to its boring 20-watt glow. I'll take an ordinary human mind, thank you very much. But happily, my mind reassembled itself, and there were no stray pieces I could see left on the floor anywhere. And I feel none the worse for wear. In fact, I feel saner than I felt in quite some time. My priorities are straighter. It's like something that needed stretching got a good stretch for about a million years. Again, there are people who should not take these drugs, but in the vast majority of cases, normalcy returns. Now, I will do my best to stay current with the research in this area as it continues to come in. And I really am looking forward to a time when psychedelic therapy is a legal, established clinical science. This really must happen. We need a modern, rational, ethically responsible way of reinstantiating the mysteries of elusis. We need to understand the furthest reaches of human well-being. And many of us need to experience these states of mind directly so that we can create an ethics and a politics and a culture, generally, that has its priorities straight. And there's no question that the use of these tools is entirely compatible with the path of meditation. For some people, and I include myself here, initial experience with psychedelics is probably the only thing that could convince us that a path exists, and that there's a landscape of mind worth exploring. And the combining of a silent retreat with a high-dose psilocybin session as was recently done in the study that Roland referenced, seems like a great idea. The title of that paper, incidentally, is Characterization and Prediction of Acute and Sustained Response to Psychedelic Psilocybin in a Mindfulness Group Retreat. That is a terrible title for a very important study. And if human history bends in the direction it should at this point, there will be retreat centers set up to do that sort of thing in the near future. I'm certainly going to spend some time thinking about how to help make that happen. Of course, I'll do my best to bring whatever relevant resources I can to the Waking Up app, and it's safe to assume that I will be watching this space and speaking with more people doing this research and doing what I can to support it. And with that, I'll leave you until next time.